one in every 20 searches that happens on Google is related to healthcare. Not only are people ready, but they're doing it. They're doing it. They are starting on Google. Who is our greatest competitor to fixing the healthcare system? It's Google search. (laughs) (laughs) So how will artificial intelligence change doctor's visits? Can smartphones make healthcare more accessible? And what's the future of tech giants, such as Amazon and Google, in the world of health? Those are just a few of the issues and topics that we explored with a panel of health tech leaders during a special live recording to kick off season three of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop, and I'm here to share this special episode of the show, recorded on location at Primera Blue Cross, the sponsor of our third season. We spoke with a panel of three health technology experts, Ranjini Ramamurthy, principal physician scientist at Microsoft. She has a background in both medicine and engineering as an MD and a computer scientist. Aran Afek, CEO and co-founder at healthcare technology startup Vim. And Robbie Cape, CEO and co-founder of startup 98.6, a Seattle-based entrepreneur who sold his previous company, Cozy, to Time, Inc., The discussion was kicked off by John Espinola, Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. So thanks, Todd. I was just going to level set just so that we could put the comments that we're going to hear from our panelists in context. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to healthcare. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. And we simplify that by saying there are four things wrong with healthcare that could be better. The first is it costs too much for what you get. And that's because too often, the second problem, you don't get the healthcare you need. The third problem, you sometimes get healthcare you don't need and that's dangerous and unhealthy because nothing in healthcare is risk-free. And then the fourth problem is along the way, You as a person don't have the experience you want or deserve. I'm pretty sure all of us have had this experience in one form or another and can relate to it personally. I can relate to it even though I'm a physician, I still have that experience, which is crazy. So if it doesn't work for me, it probably doesn't work for anybody else because I should be able to make it work. I work at Primera and I'm a physician. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. How do we do that? We do that through partnerships because we know that within our four walls, we're not gonna make healthcare work better. We're gonna do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care. Decisions that lead up to that moment, decisions that occur in that moment. That's how we're gonna make healthcare work better. So what I get excited about is talking to these folks here and hearing what they have to say and how they're going to help us bring solutions to bear that help us achieve our purpose. It's exciting. So as we've shifted our purpose, we have moved in a direction that forces us to work with those outside our four walls. Providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. Many of the relationships that you're going to hear about today are experiments because we're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. 
So I'm excited about today. Grateful to Todd and team for being here. Let's go. All right. Let's go. That's perfect words to, to kick it off. Uh, thank you, Espy. That's great. I'm, I'm told it's okay to call you Espy. That's right. Good. Robbie, do you want to start it off? What would be your pitch on 98.6, what you do, and where you are in the process? We are addressing the primary care crisis in the United States. Uh, on the one hand, we acknowledge that there's going to be a shortage of literally 20,000 physicians by the year 2020, and that number is going to rise to 30,000 by the year 2025. On the other hand, we all know here, especially, that primary care saves lives. In fact, if you introduce a single new primary care physician into a population of 10,000 people, you will reduce the mortality rate of that population by 5.3%. A single individual who has a relationship with a primary care physician is 5% less likely to be hospitalized. They are 6% less likely to end up in surgery, and they will save on the order of 30% on their health care costs over the course of their lives. So when, when we look at these two competing statistics, what what, what we clearly see is that we have to introduce dramatically, dramatically more primary care physicians into our ecosystem. And we're doing that with technology. So we are delivering an on-demand primary care service that is supported by artificial intelligence uh, and deep learning that enables our physicians to treat on the order of 25,000 patients in their panel. Uh, and that number is just going up uh, in an on-demand fashion wherever they are. So we meet people, they can be on the bus. Uh, any of you could be sitting here today, download 98.6 and conduct a visit uh, with a, a 98.6 uh, physician, including our automated assistant. Uh, you could be standing in line at a grocery store and get primary care. And we deliver that care, the highest quality of care that is completely accessible at a ridiculously affordable price. So. $20 uh, for a consumer uh, for unlimited access to primary care for an entire year. Um, that's, that's what we do in a nutshell. All right, Ranjani, do you want to jump in here? Tell us, tell us more about your role at Microsoft, what the group that you're working with and leading is focusing on, and, and where you are right now. So um, I'm a part of Microsoft Healthcare as a part of the larger clinical sensing and analytics group. Within Microsoft Healthcare, we have two pillars, and I am super proud of being a part of the pillar where our primary focus is empowering those who are in the front lines of healthcare. So we think that building technologies that are frictionless, seamless, and amplify and assist those who already know what to do well. So we're not trying to replace any caregiver or any provider, we're just saying, let us help you and let's do it in a way where it really provides value to you. Personally, I lead a team called Empower MD, where we're building an intelligent virtual assistant for physicians at point of care. So what this means is, you know, um, all of you here know, um, physicians have a kind of a, you know, um, a challenging, you know, relationship with technology. And um, the biggest ask we've had um, has come from physicians who've wanted us to really leverage speech and natural language processing technologies to give them an intelligent scribe or a digital scribe at point of care. That's great. And I know as we were talking about 
previously, there's lots of privacy implications with that, and we want to get into that in just a little bit. Sure. Aran, do you want to give us a, a sense of what Vim does? I, I have to tell you, you're a little stealthy, Vim is. It's hard to find a lot of information on what you're doing. And I, my impression, at least from reading and watching, was that it's a little bit like an Apple wallet for healthcare. Am, am I, you're bringing together lots of different services into a central place. Correct me on that and, and tell me what you're actually doing. I think. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think. I think that um, the Apple comparison. I actually like it. Um, I think what Apple brought to the world is, um, for the first time, a very integrated experience between software and hardware. So when I'm thinking about some of the partnership we're building with Primera in this market with leading um, high-value providers, the one who are really good in delivering, you know, better healthcare at lower cost, more efficiency. Um, I think about it like Apple. Um, connecting the payer and the provider seamlessly, creating you know liberation of data, uh, seamless um, referrals, prior authorization, scheduling, um, those kind of things. So, you know, most of it is not public on the website. I think it's it's kind of trying to focus more on the member experience, which is a good a good kind of uh, uh, byproduct of that. If everything is integrated, but to to much extent, we are um, like to think about ourselves as kind of. I think Apple is a nice example. Thank you okay. for Yeah. So in each of these cases, it's almost a case study in the border of technology and humans. And AI is perhaps the, the biggest example. But I'm curious, where is the, the, uh, the seam today between technology and humanity in the delivery of care, in access to care? And Robbie, I think you actually witnessed this because you see firsthand how amenable healthcare consumers are to using alternative forms of technology. What is the level of acceptance for non-human forms of interaction, of care? Where is that border today? Uh, I'd, I'd like to share a couple of statistics first, which uh, blew my mind away as I learned them, because we often get asked, are consumers ready for the digitization of care? 80% of Americans begin each and every healthcare journey on google.com. Mm. Okay? 5%, one in every 20 searches that happens on Google is related to healthcare. One in 20. Just think about how many searches each of you did today. These are phenomenal statistics. What this tells us is that not only are people ready, but they're doing it. They're doing it. They are starting on Google. Who is our greatest competitor to fixing the healthcare system? It's Google search. <laughs> okay, and why are people going to Google search? First, they're going because one, it's in their pocket. They can go there when they're standing in line at the grocery store. Guess what else? That visit to Google is free. Okay? It's very simple. People are quite predictable. When the technology is delivered to them and it's priced right and it's delivered in a way that delights them, they use it. We've seen this over and over and over again with technology that's been made available in the market and has changed the world. Our big issue is awareness. It is not willingness. When you put it in their pocket and you make the price right, 
And, and for us, you know, our perspective is, of course, you have to pay for the service, but the marginal cost of a single visit has to be zero. In other words, there is never a financial trade-off on the margin to check in with a doctor. And when you do that, you can focus on your health. Can an artificially intelligent agent deliver the care? Is that in our future? If you look big picture at, at the vision, is it possible that an AI agent will actually be making decisions that are today made by physicians? It could be assisting physicians in making decisions. And I can give you um, an example of a use case that was done by Microsoft um, with Children's Mercy Hospital. Um, it's called the CHAMPS program. So there are lots of babies, not lots, there are babies born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. These are children who have very um, pressing medical needs and usually have to wait for a period of time before they get surgery. Now, um, with Children's Mercy, Microsoft had this project where they actually gave the, pati uh, the patient's um, families a Surface tablet where they could actually log the children's vitals the, you know, the temperature as well as oxygen saturation, put this into the cloud so that their providers could be notified earlier on when the children were not thriving as they should. And they found this to be a huge success because in the past, what parents had to do was to take this big ring binder and, you know, document all this information and then call the nurse manager at the end of the week and, you know, give her the information and then there would be some action taken on the numbers that were presented to her. But here, they actually found that they reduced admissions to the ER. And um, there's some amazing statistics of the number of lives saved. It's almost like a kindergarten class that they were able to save with just their first pilot. So, of course, I, I do think that um, technology can help. Okay, but not replace Augment. Not replace, yeah. augment. And we have other projects at Microsoft, like Project NRI, which is doing some um, assistive, you know, productivity improvements for radiation oncologists as well. Um, that, again, is a super interesting project where, you know, when you go to a radiation oncologist, say you have prostate cancer, the radiation oncologist will spend about 40 minutes actually demarcating organs that should not be radiated, you know, and using some artificial intelligence-based technologies. And this is out of Microsoft Research in Cambridge. They have actually brought that time down to two minutes mm -hmm. because the system, you know, sets this up for the radiologist so that the radiologist is then vetting what the system does. But again, the physician is always in control. Okay. Around how much does AI play into your future plans, if at all? Is, is it, is, does AI play a role in, in what Vim is doing? I think that um, not, not too much these days. Yeah. I, think, I think we try to um, kind of connect the last mile which is a lot of work with brick and mortar, a lot of work with the interaction of the patient at the point of care. I think, uh, I think there's obviously a lot of um, um, things that can be done um, to fix some of the engagement paradigm using AI. And I'll just give a few examples of some of the things we're working on. Um, when I'm thinking about healthcare, I'm thinking about healthcare as like any other engagement paradigm that we're familiar with. So let's, let's think about Uber and Amazon. Um, so from a behavioral perspective, I like to think about it as a two-axis diagram. On one axis, you look into the frequency of use. On the other axis, you have the ticket price. Uber is very high frequency, very low ticket price. Amazon, somehow high frequency, a bit 
kind of bigger ticket price depending on what you're buying. Healthcare is very high ticket price, low frequency engagement paradigm. And and we, we see it in Silicon Valley a lot where um, there are many kind of well-funded company you're building, you know, consumer engagement tools that that has brilliant tech behind them but lack, lack the engagement of, and, as, and I think Robbie said, everyone's just going to Google. Um, and I think the way to fix it will be um, using um, machine learning and AI to infer um, when would the member need me hmm. instead of educating the member to go to my website when they need me. That's going to be really expensive. So instead, if we can infer when does the member need us by predicting or by ingesting real-time feed and understanding behavior, then I think we can more successfully engage in that journey. And that's just one of the things that we're working on at Vim that will maybe put us in that quartile of um, AI and machine learning. The, the sort of applicability of machine learning and natural language processing, this whole field of artificial intelligence, really depends on which area or which sort of segment of healthcare you're you're thinking about. Obviously, the answer is very different when you're talking about uh, primary care versus when you're talking about very complex uh, chronic care issues or even just complex health issues. Where, where as 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 the, the truth is that the majority of the dollars are being spent there. On the primary care front, eighty percent of cases fall into ten pretty straightforward categories of diagnoses uh, in terms of what's coming in the front door. Uh, so it, it really is true that common problems are common. Uh, what, what that means is, uh, you know, th that's exactly where AI tends to work really, really well. Now, you, you have to uh, build a system that is capable of augmenting the physician because in our current regulatory environment, and uh, you know, I think it's important for us to talk about regulatory mm -hmm. in the context of all of this, in the current regulatory environment, um, you have to be a licensed physician in order to practice medicine. To deliver uh, personalized advice of any kind to an individual in the United States, you need to have a medical license. And, and you know, people are pushing those limits. I think that's a mistake. Um, I, I believe that so long as that's what the regulation says, and I think that's what the regula regulation says for some very good reasons, we need to keep a physician behind every decision that gets made. In time, some of those regulations will change for very specific cases. Like, you know, you could imagine for a flu diagnosis. You could imagine that in the next five or eight years, there's a period of time where, where the flu is incredibly common. Um, it's very well understood. Uh, we might be able to imagine in five or eight years from now, uh, the FDA approving an algorithm that is, uh, that is built on top of machine learning that is capable of diagnosing the flu uh, and prescribing the right medication in the right circumstances. Uh, you know, a, a case like that is possible, but that's one very, very simple case where you would have no physician present, and that's many, many years away. Right now, it's really about making the physician exceptionally, exceptionally efficient.
We are on location this week at Primera Blue Cross, kicking off the third season of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast with Ranjani Ramamurthy, Principal Physician Scientist at Microsoft, Aran Afek, CEO and co-founder at healthcare technology company Vim, and Robbie Cape, CEO and co-founder of Startup 98.6. We'll be right back after this break. This GeekWire podcast is brought to you by Primera Blue Cross. I have a particular quote uh, that I like to say. I work in healthcare during the day, and then I go home to the 21st century. That's Torben Nielsen, Primera's Vice President of Innovation and Strategic Investments. And I think that just really exemplifies, uh, you know, the healthcare is way behind, right? We are probably the only industry that still subsidizes fax machine manufacturers. No other industry actually uses faxes. It's very hard for a health plan to be taking risk because if you think about it, health plans is all about mitigating risk. And so it really requires a very conscious effort and great support from uh, executives to launch uh, initiatives that actually are taking risk and where you may not know where you end up. There's a lot of unknowns as you innovate and having that support at Primero has just been the key to us and what we're trying to do. Learn more about technology and innovation at Primera Blue Cross at Primera.com slash innovation. That's P-R-E-M-E-R-A dot com slash innovation. Welcome back to GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. Let's jump back into our discussion on location at Primera Blue Cross. Arun, you use the analogy of Uber and Lyft. And so I have to ask, so as we're talking about this, when I get into a Lyft, it is generally a driver that I have never met before. And I only know by his or her rating in the app. Is there a risk that we are going to be transactionalizing healthcare in the same way and that we won't have the same relationship with our providers that we do today because we're merely taking the person who happens to open the door to the clinic that day or answer more, more appropriately perhaps, be on the other end of the chat, right? Is the, what is the risk uh, to the relationship between the doctor and the patient in this new world? I think there's a huge risk. Um, the way I'm thinking about it is, so you know, it's 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 pretty easy um, to look into how millennials are accessing healthcare today. More retail clinics. Yeah. I think you know the Aetna CVS acquisition points to that kind of need to be in those retail clinics, urgent care centers that large hospital systems are uh, popping up like you know mushrooms after rain. And I think it's gonna just continue and evolve because people just want to have access over a relationship. And I think the risk here is that a single-time encounter might be good for certain people if they are very determined and they're very, um, I would say, uh, um, kind of they're going to go and research everything and they're going to be smart. The majority of people still need guidance, and I think that's not going to change very fast. They need to have a trusted advisor that can lead them to the right place. Um, I think I think uh, me not having that kind of care champion but kind of trusting on single time encounters can eventually lead to more fragmentation and more downstream cost that is going to be hard to hard to prevent so I, I do think there is a there's a bit of a challenge in, in even in existing benefit design that doesn't mandate that I'll have a PCP I think that's that's a bit a bit of a problem so I, I'd like to just layer on top of what uh what Aron just talked about, I could not agree more. And it's so interesting. If you really look at the source, this is something that we study at 98.6 closely because we view our, uh, one of the jobs that we're doing is attempting to combat 
this regressive transactionalization of primary care. If you look at the causes of primary care, all of the examples that Iran listed, urgent care clinics, retail clinics, all, everything that's, that's happening out there, I would even say old-fashioned um, telemedicine, these are all, th these are not technology solutions. <laughs> not even close. Technology is not behind any of those things. The business, the underlying business model of fee for service is what we believe is leading to the transactionalization of primary care. If you look at those urgent care clinics that are popping up, why are they popping up? I mean, they're basically lead gen to higher cost services. I mean, talk about a transaction. You know, those retail clinics, I mean, we know why they exist and what they're trying to drive. They're trying to actually drive a secondary transaction. What we're trying to do at 98.6 is deliver good old-fashioned primary care that, un that is at the underlying element a relationship between 98.6 and the patient. Because all of those benefits that we talked about earlier that happen between when, that, when a patient has a relationship with primary care, none of that accrues when that millennial is going into a retail clinic. That isn't a relationship with primary care. That's getting their problem covered. What we want to do, and this is a little controversial, and it's probably the hardest thing that we have to do at 98.6, but we're incredibly focused on it, is build a relationship between our patients and the 98.6 service. Not the physician who happens to be behind the delivery of care, but the service. The service knows them. The service understands them. The service knows why they came to the clinic the last time. The service is reaching out to them proactively to engage them in their health. The service understands who their family members are and what that might mean for their health moving forward. Technology can do that. And, and, and we actually believe that that technology applied in that way actually leads to where we want care to be, which is it's about a relationship. I'm glad you took the conversation to that direction because that's what I was thinking about in terms of how technology can be built to mirror some of the best practices that you see for care delivery. So let me give you an example. One of the best pediatricians I ever worked with in the Seattle area used to have a binder for every child, and he'd have the child draw a picture at every visit. So each time a patient, you know, the child came in with her parents, um, even if it was a different provider, they'd pick up this book and say, hey, let me see, let me show you what you drew the last time around, and let's see what you can draw this time. So there was that personalization aspect that happened. So even if there was a change in the caregiver for the child, she saw that she was known to the physician. And that broke the ice. And so when I think of the technology that we build at Microsoft, um, I'm always thinking about how to personalize it for the patient as well as personalize it for the physician. So personalizing it for the patient in terms of, you know, what Robbie just said, knowing what the patient's social history is. If they have a dog called Gorky Poo, you should know that they had a dog called Gorky Poo. So that the next physician who comes in or the next nurse who comes in to provide the care is able to really talk about, you know, it, it's important because there's enough research that shows that if the patient knows that they've made this connection with the provider, they are much more likely to actually 
generate a plan that they will actually adhere to, which, you know, what are we trying to do all of this? At the end of the day, we really want good patient outcomes. So um, I, I love that you brought it to that point because I think, I think of it every day. How do you personalize it for the patient? How do you personalize it for the physician? And um, why can't we take the best practices we see in clinic and feed that into the technologies that we build? Just, just one thing to add, I think um, this question really summarizes the entire um, discussion for me into, um, so every primary care physician would be responsible over a year to run 10 million bucks of downstream cost, right? Huge number, right? And, and just by the, the sheer way they would refer, they would decide whether to refer or in-source their services, or they decide where to refer if they need to. And that, that's how we determine most of the downstream costs in healthcare, by where primary care people go telling you go. Um, then, then let's connect what Robbie said about Google. If 80% of the journey starts in Google, right? As, as, a, as a patient, where am I gonna be more likely to land after that Google search? On the land page of a provider that charges 500 bucks for an MRI? or the one who is able to charge 5,000 bucks because you know they also have $100 million in marketing budget every year. The one who puts nice billboards over the 5i, or the one who is, is barely able to uh, do a little Facebook page and, and close the month, right? And, and I think the more transactional in nature healthcare journey would be, um, the less involved the primary care physician would be and just act as a referral machine like the retail clinics are, not able to insource anything. They just refer out everything, right? And it's really easy to either open them or buy them, and, you know. Um, the more transaction it's gonna be, the more likely our patients are gonna be acquired by providers who are able to acquire them through those channels. And the only way to you know, block this is building relationship with real people that give you real advice. And I know it sounds sometimes outdated in 2019. I, I mean, hey, can technology just do that? I mean, it's, it can't. And so, so I think it's the, only, it's the ultimate way to, um, to, to kind of provide a good answer for this transactional nature that is driving a lot of downstream costs, which is un, uncontrollable. I got to ask, and I know this is the question on the minds of almost everybody in this room here at Primera, what happens to insurance in this world? What, what happens to insurance if you're paying a subscription, if you're interacting over text? What happens? Uh, well, so I, I, I can state just at the, um, just uh, looking empirically um, at the center of, of many ACOs, uh, in this nation uh, is our insurance companies. Um, you know, you still need to have a network of providers. That, you know, the way you pay them has to be different. Uh, you might even have a, a network, you know, multiple different uh, health systems that could be involved uh, in the ACO. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of administration organization that still needs to happen. Uh, even simply understanding, you know, the underlying work, and it's, I mean, we can talk about it in about a second here, but it takes, you know, incredible intellectual property to even just figure out what that capitated rate is supposed to be. 
I mean, who's who's going to figure out what that capitated rate should should be in a given location? The monthly subscription fee. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, as it turns out, hospitals are not well equipped uh, to to run those sorts of calculations. The underlying chassis that's in place right now is a fee-for-service chassis. So I, I, I believe just like everything else that needs to happen to carry us forward, uh, what ends up happening is it, this innovation comes out of collaboration amongst multiple key members of the ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I, I believe at the core, you know, the, the, the beginning of, of a capitated model is going to come from uh, a, uh, a, a payer, uh, a, a carrier um, collaborating with a health system or a set of health systems um, and with, with a client being a self-insured employer. You know, that is sort of the beginning of, of where the collaboration needs to happen. So I, I absolutely believe there's, there's a critical role. Anybody else want to take that question on? Yes, go ahead. I think that um, the, the, the way I'm thinking about it is what's going to happen in the absence of a local market regulator like Primera. Um, that, that's, that's just the way I'm thinking about that. Um, and I think the future I imagine is, is, is increasingly um, more aggressive provider consolidation that without a regulator... Um, and I'm talking about a private regulator uh, that can interact and keep independents or groups in the game of being groups and not being part of a larger kind of more integrated system. So I think keeping those different parts apart mm. is the most critical thing that we can have in healthcare. And the only body which is incentivized to keeping those things apart and capturing the premium and be the one who is able to drive reimbursement based on value is a payer. If we don't have the payer in the picture, like some parts of the Bay Area, for example, um, the provider is able to lock down population, increase the cost, and the absence of competition, they just gobble all the physician, capture the referral, just like you know, gambling sites that will buy all their affiliates so they can you know, capture the different leads, and and that's a huge risk. One reason that it's been fascinating to watch Microsoft over the years is that Microsoft has gone through varying levels of engagement on healthcare. Um, and one of the stories that I tracked personally very closely was Microsoft and GE with Caradigm, which uh, ended up unraveling. Um, and it's fascinating to me in part because currently we also then have another big Seattle area tech giant, Amazon, partnering with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan in a very different way than, than Microsoft and, and GE did. I'm curious, what are the prospects for Amazon specifically making a serious change in healthcare beyond its own employees? Because that's what they're talking about first, is just working with their own employees. What are those prospects, Robbie? I think Amazon is probably the, the single company in the world that is best positioned uh, to have a, a deep, deep impact uh, on, on the industry as we know it today. And there are two specific areas. One that we haven't talked about at all, uh, but I, I literally refer to our prescription crisis as an utter fiasco. 
Um, you know, if you dive into what's happening in prescriptions, uh, we literally have um, organization, for-profit organizations, I believe, and this is just my editorial, slightly over-dramatized view, almost stealing from, from consumers. It, it, it is the saddest state of affairs. Uh, and uh, a huge percentage, I'm not, I don't have the exact percentage um, on the tip of my tongue, although I wouldn't be surprised if someone in the audience does know uh, what percent of healthcare spend uh, is on prescriptions. Amazon is in, is in the position, and in fact, I believe they've already started. They've acquired PillPack. They've, they've acquired PillPack, and, and I think that that is the tip of the iceberg. Okay. Uh, to to literally fixing uh, the prescription problem in the United States and and then around the world, and that will have an enormous impact not just on access, uh, but also on cost. And second step, I think also uh, this is speculation on my part. Um, I I believe that the next step uh, related to cost savings and, and health is diagnostics. You know, if, if, you look, if you look at where I also believe that Amazon can have considerable impact, look at just one specific problem, the flu. The flu costs the United States $10 billion a year. One ailment, Amazon, could by by virtue of of operationalizing the the distribution and the testing associated with the flu and then operationalizing the delivery of the medication associated with the flu they could likely cut out a material percent of of that cost like people literally would not need to leave their home to be tested for the flu and then to get their medication for the flu and I'm just talking about one little issue. I mean, you know, across those two areas, the impact could just be phenomenal. What's though the risk of the, the crossover? Because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I could go to Amazon someday and it would say, you know, you just purchased these bonbons. People who also purchased that also liked this Xanax. You know, I mean, like at what point, <laughs> at, what, at what point does, does the line get crossed there with some of these, these tech giants? Um, Sorry, maybe that's just a joke and we can leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> I've, you know, we, we've built our platform uh, at 98.6 on top of AWS. Uh, AWS is the, is the leader in the industry uh, in the area of both security and privacy. There's plenty of other tech giants, and we don't have to mention names, who've had their share of issues related to privacy and security. Uh, and we have yet to see that on the Amazon front. I think Amazon is doing a great job drawing the line. Why? Because Amazon puts only one entity first. Only one entity first. At the expense of all others, Robbie, and that is? The customer. That's right. That's and right. It causes them all sorts of problems with everybody else, but that's a whole other issue. Yep. So, so do, do you, uh, this, Robbie, you sound like you're about, like you're positioning yourself to get acquired almost. You're saying such nice <laughs> things about Amazon. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Abs okay, absolutely, absolutely not, for the record. Not. All right, all right. Or it, does everybody else share that optimism about Amazon? Because I'm, I'm skeptical about them. I, 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 in terms of their overall reach, I think they're trying to do too much. They're the everything, everything. They're not just the everything store anymore. They're the everything, everything. One of the most interesting things that Amazon actually invented in the past, 
I know, but basically since since the end of the '90s, is payments and pricing, hmm. and the way to efficiently price their inventory in a way that will drive more people to trust them that they are the most valuable place to buy things online, right? And maybe now also offline. And I think this is something that will they will try to take to healthcare. You know, TBD if that's they're going to be make it successful, but I think. Amazon, if I had to bet, Amazon is going to um, at some point try to perhaps acquire a TPA that will help them to price healthcare services to some extent. I think Amazon will look into um, see how they can pay for healthcare uh, to some extent. Maybe it's going to be more virtual services to begin with and, and then maybe going into more physical services. And um, I mean, it, this is something I'm not completely excluding it, I think the industry should be keeping an eye open on. We've seen smartphones do so many different things, from diagnosis to monitoring to communication. Where should the line be drawn? Uh, what are the limits today? And what will we see in two, three years in terms of healthcare delivery access on our smartphones? In my opinion, using mobile apps to track and manage chronic disease conditions is, you know, Definitely something that's happening right now. Um, what I think about when I see this profusion of mobile apps that are targeted to the patients, I, I look at it in terms of, you know, one, does it inform care that a physician gives, you know, or, or, or is it just generating a lot of noise for the physician? Um, and two, um, if it does inform care, how do you integrate it into the care delivery pipeline such that it actually betters outcomes for patients? So I think there's definitely a place for it. Um, I've seen some very interesting ones. Um, and again, some of them are really transferring some of the best practices from clinic into the app. And, you know, and, and, and they're interesting. But I think with a grain of salt and that, you know, it has to inform care. I think um, it's easy to look into other insurance industries like uh, car insurance industry and how they're leveraging data from smartphones to give me feedback about how I drive and perhaps also price my premium in accordance to the feedback I'm getting there. I'm sure that Jim Gratzko here is you know, heading actuarial science at Primera would love to get feeds from mobile phones about my you know, heart rate, how many steps I'm doing every day, and, and <laughs> perhaps look into maybe underwrite my premium in accordance and to create a differentiator. So I think, you know, whether it's going to be on a mobile phone or other implants that I'm going to be wearing in the next 10 years, um, probably three years is still a mobile phone, um, I think this data is going to be invaluable and could be leveraged in healthcare. So, Especially as a, you know, as a, as a technology guy, I'd, I'd say my perspective on this is a little bit controversial. The, the data that is generated by these devices um, is complex, and at the end of the day, a lot of the data ends up implying what is essentially personalized healthcare advice to the individuals who are perceiving that data. Mm. And personalized healthcare advice is the definition of the practice of medicine. Uh, and you're supposed to have a license to practice medicine. So I think that when that data is being generated and is ultimately getting reviewed 
um, and understood and interpreted uh, and counseled uh, with the expertise of a board-certified physician, uh, it's incredibly interesting. I mean, we're talking about taking diagnostic devices and essentially democratizing them and generating that data for doctors to understand. That is phenomenal. However, if you take that data and you kind of, sort of, you know, make your way around the rules and end up delivering advice without that license to practice medicine, I think you are ultimately playing with fire. Uh, you are uh, like, yes, certainly in 40, 50, 60% of cases, you might be empowering people to have some insight that they might not have had before. But, you know, it's not really any different than the democratization of healthcare information on Google. You know, but what you end up leading to is people who are not qualified to interpret that data are interpreting it and coming to conclusions about that data that they should not be coming to. And I think that's dangerous. I hear Robbie's point of view, and it just depends upon the kind of data that you're generating and what the ap application is for. If you're tracking your symptoms and trying to say, hey, what's a trigger for my migraine? That's a different, completely different thing, saying, hey, I should not be eating those chocolates. But a device trying to tell you that you're having a heart attack is a completely different ballgame. Yeah, and, and the, the, the first one that really made it through this new FDA policy was essentially an EKG uh, in your smartphone. Personally, I think that's kind of a little scary. And I'm a tech guy. Yeah. Big picture, what does the world look like in 10 years if things change in the way that you hope they do? In short, I'd say phys physicians would go back or clinicians, any provider would go back to doing what it is that they know to do best, which is taking care of patients. And, and I think that that's, that's just it. Just you know, taking care of patients, patient-centric care, that's why they went to medical school. That's why they went to nursing school. Um, let them do what they know to do best. I, I think, the, as, as Robbie started, I think the business model would change significantly in the next 10 years uh, from a uh, reimbursement perspective on a physician side. It's going to be much more value-driven. not talking about just about ACOs. I'm talking about large portions of the book of business going to be driven mainly by performance, um, which, which, in my opinion, will be a mixture between... Um, fee-for-service or enhanced fee-for-service with performance. And I think what we would start to see on the, on the patient side is more personalized care plans um, from A to Z. So if I'm a diabetic patient, I would have a health plan for diabetic patients, right? And then and, and I would have specific centers of excellence that would treat, you know, my conditions. And I'm not going to just buy the same product that other people are doing. So I think there's going to be a way to differentiate and create very, very personalized uh, insurance products. It's physicians who are practicing at the, at the top of their license, uh, who love their jobs day in and day out. Uh, it's patients who are getting what they need exactly when they need it. So what that translates into is for the easy stuff um, that technology is playing a very substantial role um, and that there is this transparency across the system that enables those patients to, in, in the event that their care needs to get more complicated and hence more expensive, there's a transparency across the system that enables them to get that care uh, 
in, in, in the place that's going to lead to the best outcome, uh, where the, the, the quality is highest um, and the delivery is the most affordable. Everyone will be happy. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. For more, you can go to geekwire.com slash health tech and be sure to subscribe to GeekWire Health Tech in your favorite podcast app. We'll have new episodes every month during the upcoming season, so be sure to check back for more. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening to Health Tech. Thank you.